0: All right, I know it feels short, cutting that three minutes down to 30 seconds. I'm trying to wean you off of that mid-morning coffee break uh, just so that we can stay focused on what God has for us and maybe try to get out uh, a little sooner. And uh, just want to bless you with an opportunity to connect with each other and with the coffee cup after our worship gathering this morning. Uh, so we want to press in to God's Word and just um, make ourselves ready to receive what the Lord would say to us. Amen? Who's ready? Come on. All right. So uh, in that, um, let's pray, and uh, we're just going to invite the Spirit of the Lord to illuminate the truth of God's Word and make it applicable in our lives. Lord, again, we thank you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I'm mindful, Lord, of how Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And uh, in like manner, Lord, we pray for our time together right here and now, that you would grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know you better. And we understand, Lord, that that means knowing not just who you are and how you operate, but it, it includes understanding your will for us. It includes understanding your plans and purposes. It includes understanding your heart. For us, and we're eager to learn. So come and teach us now from the truth of your word and the revelation of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we have been talking for a few weeks now about a quest that every one of us are on together. It's called the quest for living well. Does anybody want to live well? Come on now. I should see every hand raised. Some of you are just getting lazy. Right. No, I really want to live poorly. I want to have a terrible life. No, we, of course. We all want to live well. The question is, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we do that, right? And there are lots of ideas and opinions out there in the world around us about what living well is like how do we do it well i'm i'm here to tell you that god's word lays out a path for us the path of righteousness the path of truth the path of light the path of life abundant and eternal life through faith in jesus christ right and living well we understand from scripture comes only comes when we're in right relationship with the living god through faith in jesus christ and allowing them to inform what we do and how we do it. So we're all on this quest for living well, and we've been talking about this for a few weeks. We looked at, uh, this, we've been looking at the story of the Samaritan woman who encounters Jesus at Jacob's well in Samaria, and we've uh, we've covered already how that encounter with Jesus changed her life forever. Right? She met Jesus at the well. It was an unexpected divine appointment. She didn't know he was going to be there. He might have known she was going to be there. They had an encounter. They had a conversation. And her life got changed for the better. Forever changed for the better. And not only that, the whole village got locked. right? She found out the good news about who Jesus was. And then she went and told all of her friends and neighbors. They all came and met Jesus. And he ended up staying in that village for a few days. It wasn't on his itinerary. right? He was on his way to Galilee just passing through town, but he stayed a few days because the people of that village were so responsive to his ministry. I love that. Now, the other thing that we learned as we looked at this story a few weeks ago is that Jesus saw this encounter with the woman at the well as a teachable moment for the disciples too, right? So the disciples were there. They went into town to get some food for lunch. They came back. They're talking to Jesus about food, and he says, My food is to do the will and to finish the work of my Father in heaven. It's an amazing statement. And it's very appropriate for us to kind of think about and meditate on that statement in the midst of a 21-day season of prayer and fasting, right? My food, Jesus says, is to do the will and finish the work of my Father in heaven. What was Jesus doing? Well, he wasn't just describing his own life and his own relationship with the Father. He was doing that, of course. But he was inviting the disciples into that experience with him. Right? He was teaching them, this is how I operate. This is how I live my life from day to day. It's all about my relationship with the Father. It's all about serving his purposes. And in doing that, in explaining that, Jesus is inviting his followers, the disciples, into that same experience, right? So we learn together that living well is partnering with God in his work, which is the work of changing people's lives, right? So we see it exemplified in the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets, and then we see the disciples encouraged and invited and instructed and inspired to go out and do the same thing that Jesus is doing great story. But last week, we transitioned to another part of the story that I think is hugely important for us to think about. Because Jesus, in the context of this conversation, talks a lot about worship. And he explains to the woman, in response to her question, he explains what genuine worship really is. So this is a really insightful story for us to look at if we want to think about and talk about and learn about the practice of worship in the life of a local church and in our own lives individually. right? So just to review quickly the point I made last Sunday, in essence I said to live well is to prioritize the practice of genuine worship toward God. You can't live well in God's opinion, if you don't worship well. If you're not a worshiper, if you're not becoming a genuine worshiper, if you're not prioritizing the practice of worship in the way that God wants you to, then you're not living as well as you could. Right? So there is such a thing as true worship, genuine worship. And we learn that God, the Father, is seeking Genuine worshipers. He's looking for them, scanning the face of the earth, looking for people who know how to worship him in the right way. And that brings us then, friends, to what I want to talk about this morning, because what we didn't quite get to was the description of what genuine worship is in John 4, 23, and 24. And we'll look at those verses in the whole story in just a moment. But let me begin this morning. with a story that really serves to illustrate what I want you to learn about. Because sometimes uh, you can identify a person who figured it out, right? And they, they, they learned the lesson, and then they began to act on it and demonstrate it. And others then can learn from their example. And so, you know, as we've been studying and learning about worship together, I've been reading some different books that I've collected in my library on the subject of worship. And one of those is a great little book uh, that I'd recommend if you're interested in more on this topic. It's called The Unquenchable Worshipper, and it's written by Matt Redman, who many of you will recognize as a popular songwriter. Right? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Um, What's it? uh, Yeah, 10,000 years. Um, And he's written several other ones as well. Uh, So, anyway, Matt Redman, phenomenal songwriter, but he's a really pretty good author, too. And it's a nice little book, not too long, uh, easily digestible. And he tells a story at the beginning of this book that I want to relay to you because I think it's a, a phenomenal illustration of what genuine worship looks like. Listen to this. Matt writes, I recently heard the story of Fanny Crosby, the American hymn writer who lived during the 19th century. She described a life changing incident that happened to her as a baby. When about six weeks old, and this is quoting from her when about six weeks old, I was taken sick and my eyes grew very weak. And those who had charge of me poulticed my eyes, which was an old form of medical treatment. Their lack of knowledge and skill destroyed my sight forever. Imagine that. You're a six-year-old kid, you get sick, and then somebody that's trying to help you actually blinds you. As I grew older, they told me that I should never see the faces of my friends, the flowers of the field, the blue of the skies, or the golden beauty of the stars. Soon I learned what other children possess, but I made up my mind to store away a little jewel in my heart, which I called contentment. In fact, Fanny Crosby was only eight years old when she wrote this song. The lyrics go like this. Oh, I won't try to sing it because I don't know the tune. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. That's from an eight-year-old girl who knew how to worship. This contented worshiper went on to write about 8,000 hymns over her lifetime. Those thousands of songs were simply the result of a fire that burned in her heart for Jesus and could not be put out. Someone once asked her, Fanny, do you wish that you'd not been blinded? She replied in typical style, Well, the good thing about being blind is that the very first face I'll see will be the face of Jesus. That's the mind of a worshiper. So let's think about what Jesus has to say about this subject of worship, the practice of worship, and the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Here's the story. We're picking it up from verse 19. And we read this last week. It'll be familiar to you if you were here with us. But just listen closely this interaction and what Jesus says about the practice of worship. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the one. I'm the one, he says, that you've been waiting for and looking for. And the implication is Jesus can explain the kind of worship that God is looking for. Now, as we look at this passage again, there are two things left to cover that I didn't get to last Sunday and that I promised we'd come back to. And they both come straight out of verses 23 and 24. It's it's the, the description that Jesus gives of true, or genuine worship. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So genuine worshipers, which are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks, worship in the Spirit and in truth, Jesus tells us. So I want to dig into those words with you to discover what they mean for us. Because we want, I trust, and aim to become the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. But let's, if you'll allow me, uh, let's tackle them in reverse order. So I want to talk about what it means to worship in truth first, and then what it means to worship in spirit. The good news, this is only a two-point sermon, not a three-point sermon, or four, or five, or six. The points might be a little longer than normal, but there's only two. So, to worship in truth. What is it? To worship in truth is to focus your worship on the one true living God, understanding who God really is, and who you are in relationship to him. That's my definition, personally, of what it means to worship in truth. One more time, to worship in truth is to focus your worship on the one true living God, understanding who God really is, and who you are in right relationship to him. So this characteristic of true or authentic or genuine worship Then, challenges us to examine whether our worship is rightly directed. What is the object of your worship? What or who is it that you're worshiping? To put it simply, true worship cannot be focused on false gods or idols, it has to be focused on the one true. Living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So true worship can't be tainted, then, or misdirected by any false sense of who God is or what God is like. To worship in truth is to understand rightly who God is and what he's done for you. But if you believe something about God that's untrue, and contrary to his genuine nature, then your worship becomes compromised. Right? Seeing God's goodness and glory more and more clearly leads to worship that is on target. Think of it that way. You want your worship to be on target. And the target is the reality of who God is. The truth of who God really is. So for example, let me give you uh, something to think about here. If you believe that God is unholy or unloving, then your view of God will be skewed, right? Your understanding, skewed. Your ability to worship God as he deserves will be compromised because you're not seeing God in truth. So here we have to distinguish between good intentions and ultimate reality. There are lots of people that worship something or someone that they think is God. But just because someone claims to worship God doesn't mean that they really are worshiping the one true living God. right? The Bible is full and full, through and through with examples of idolatry or false religion, right? So that's what we have to be careful about here. Your worship might be truly heartfelt, but if it's not directed toward the one true living God, then it's missing the mark. If someone truly believes something, that doesn't necessarily mean that what they believe is true. Right? Just because you truly believe something doesn't make it true. So you have to understand what is true for your worship to be in truth. There's a great story that's told that I I think illustrates this idea well. It comes from uh, a book some of you may have read called Classic Christianity by a Christian author named Bob George. And he talks about an experience that he had as a young man when he got a job gardening. And he was assigned to um, weed a patch of tomatoes. And so... Uh, he wasn't really given, you know, any further instruction. Just sent out to go weed the patch of tomatoes. And uh, after half an hour or so, the supervisor came along to check on him. And lo and behold, he had inadvertently pulled up all the tomato plants and left the weeds. Crazy story, isn't it? I mean, how could somebody, you know, actually do that? He did. He had great intentions. He was working really hard. He was diligent, pouring his heart into the work. But at the end of 30 minutes, there was a problem. His good intentions didn't mean that he was doing the right thing. You see? And that's the problem. What happens when they get delivered from the fiery furnace is amazing. But this declaration about their intentions before the Lord is is phenomenal. I mean, if you're not inspired by this, then come on, wake up. This is an incredible story, an example of refusing to worship a false god or to participate in a false religion. And, you know, let me just say that despite many bumper stickers, to the contrary, not all religions are created equal. Can I say that? You might even... You might even be able to find an amen for that. The definition of a false religion is a system of worship that exalts and honors an untrue God. Right? Not all religions are created equal. If you're worshiping something that is not the true God, the one true living God, you're participating in idolatry. You're participating in a false religion. Any religion that worships something or someone created rather than the true creator of heaven and earth, is a false religion. That's that simple. Paul said this in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Listen closely, friends. Listen closely to these words. Do you see the importance of what Paul's saying? False worship, he's saying, exchanges the truth about God for a lie. That's what false worship does. And therefore, it worships and worships and to commune with God in the Spirit. So for John, true worship was, was not about being you know, in the right holy place at the right time. It wasn't about necessarily going to church or going to some holy mountain or temple or whatever. It was about being with the Lord in the Spirit. This is reminiscent, right, of what Jesus explained to the woman at the well. It's not about worshiping on a particular day or on a particular holy mountain as the Samaritans did or in a particular holy city like Jerusalem. It's not about worshiping in any particular location like a particular church building on a Sunday morning. This is good. It's good that we come together. It's important that we do this. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. But worship is so much bigger than what happens here on Sunday morning. The key is not where you are. It's where God is in you. Are you in him? Is he in you? Are you communing with God in the Spirit? You can do that anywhere at any time, by yourself or with others. So, with with John, it didn't matter where he was located geographically. What matters, what only mattered was that God was present with him and in him. And so, though he happened to be on an island, what really mattered was that he was in the Spirit. In the Spirit. To worship in the Spirit is to bring yourself consciously into God's presence and then to affirm and welcome the mystery and the fullness of his presence to overwhelm you. It's to recognize that wherever you might be, you're with him and you're in him and he's in you. And that means you can worship God anywhere at any time. You don't have to be in Jerusalem to do it. You you certainly don't have to be in church to worship God. That's what we do here. But this isn't the only place you can do it. As the infamous Dr. Seuss might say, you can do it in your car, or you can do it in a bar. You can do it on a boat, or you can do it with a goat. It doesn't matter where you are. Just worship Jesus, near or far. Thank you, That was just a little tip of the hat to all of our Seussical members. So as you read about Jesus, or about the early disciples, you're going to come across this phrase every now and then in the New Testament. In the Spirit, blah, 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 right? In the Spirit. So-and-so was in the Spirit, and then this happened, or this happened. And it's amazing, actually, how frequently that phrase is used. And take note that what it really means is united with God. In communion with God, filled with God's presence, so and so did such and such. such, Right? And usually, whatever they did is an act of worship. Not just an act of service, but an act of worship, right? In the broadest sense, they're expressing the value of God by serving Him in any one of a multitude of different ways that we can do that. I I like to think of. what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. This is how Paul described being in the Spirit to the Corinthians. He said, so when you're assembled, I am with you in Spirit. And the power of the Lord Jesus is present. 1 Corinthians 5.4. What he's saying is, my dear friends, when you come together in God's presence to worship God, that's a good and beautiful thing. I wish I could be with you. I want to be there, but I can't in person, but I can in the Spirit. And in the Spirit, I'm with you. We're all united together in the presence of God in the Spirit. This is also reminiscent of Paul's words in Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. This is such a compelling invitation. Listen, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then listen to what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. You worship. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know why you should aim to be filled with the Spirit on a continual basis? There's the reason right there. Because it will lead you into a life of worship. And notice Paul's description here of what takes place, right? When you're filled with the Spirit. Worship results. Another in, uh, interesting insight from these verses is that Paul's actually using a, a verb here that's in, in the Greek is a, a future imperative, which if you're not like an English scholar, might be confusing. You might not understand what I'm driving at. But let me translate for you. I think that English versions. I wish that English versions got this right, because what it really should say is, "Don't be uh, drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit." That's what Paul's saying, literally. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is an ongoing activity in our lives. It's an ongoing quest in our lives to be filled with the Spirit so that we can practice the priority of worship in the right way. And, you know, uh, what Paul's describing in and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. John had this revelation of Jesus because he was a worshiper, because he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he saw Jesus, the risen and glorified Jesus, as he really is, right? He saw Jesus without the encumbrance of his incarnate human body. In other words, he saw the spiritual Jesus, not just the physical Jesus. Not the Jesus of flesh and blood. The Jesus that sits on the right hand, the the throne at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And, And this is the beauty of learning to worship in spirit and truth, because what happens then is that your spirit gets connected with the Spirit of God so that the Spirit of God can show you even more about who God is and how great God is. There's this, how do I say it? There's this, this sense in which worshiping in truth leads to worshiping in spirit, and worshiping in spirit leads to worshiping in more truth, and worshiping in more truth leads to, greater fullness of the Spirit, and greater fullness of the Spirit opens your eyes to greater truth. And they cycle off of each other so that you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the presence of God. And friends, that is the best place in life that you can ever be. That is the best thing in life that you can ever do. To bring yourself, into the presence of the living God and to worship him.